Good afternoon. Again, this is, I am Pastor Neil Wemus, and this is the continuing series of videos of Cat, Chris, Lutheran Catechesis' basic instruction as to what it means to be a Lutheran. And so the next question, so we talked about what is a Lutheran. We talked about the, the conf Lutheran confessions. But the thing is, is the core of everything, it all comes down to 66 documents that make up the Holy Bible. That is at the core of what we believe, teach, and confess. If it cannot be found within the whole in, within the scriptures, within the Bible, we don't believe it, we don't teach it, we don't confess it. Now, now that does not mean we can't practice things that are in the Bible. So, for example, the Bible says nothing about automobiles, but I drove a car today. So, you know, we're not that strict on it, but we don't command something. So we don't say, you have to drive a car. If you don't drive a car, you're not a true Christian. We don't say that because the Bible says nothing about cars, right? So the scripture is the source of all um, teaching in regards to the Christian faith, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to confess to be a Christian, right? So if it's not in there, we don't confess it as part of the Christian truth, the Christian teaching, Christian instruction. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to, with this video, we're going to be talking about what is the Bible, what's in it. Um, if you look right over my head, uh, you can't quite see it. There's a couple pop vinyl figures. I, If you can't tell from my backside, what's behind me, I'm quite a bit of a nerd. You see bunch of WWE title belts. I'm a pro wrestling fan. Uh, you see some Batman figures. You see pop vinyl figures and stuff like that. I'm a nerd. Okay, deal with it. But uh, if you were to look behind those two pop vinyl figures right there, you would actually see that I have those. that's a shelf completely of Bibles. All right? And so there are multiple translations, which, by the way, creates some confusion. What translation should I go with? Well, first to understand that, the first thing you have to understand that the Bible was written primarily in three languages. Um, what I have here, right here, this is the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. This is the Hebrew Old Testament, all right? So right there I open up to Ezekiel chapter 20. So... This is the Hebrew Scriptures, which, by the way, if you're noticing, I'm pointing that you read that way, not that way, all right? So you read it a different direction. And you notice it's like a little, looks like all these little chicken scratches. Yeah, different letters. They, those little dots, those are the vowel pointing, which, by the way, were not originally in there, um, was put in, put in much later. Uh, right down here is what is, sorry, Right down here is what is known as a textual apparatus. Uh, these are basically dealing with variants in the text. Uh, one thing that's very, and I'm going to deal with talk about this a little bit more later, um, but these are some issues that are within the text that, are, that vary from manuscript to manuscript. Uh, there's really not that many of them when you compare it to the New Testament. Um, and that has a lot to do with the translation of the, um, the Old Testament manuscripts were much stronger than the New Testament. Uh, and then you also have these little notes on the side here, and these are basically for the lectors. 
um, usually for those who are reading in the context of the synagogue worship and things like that. So this is what the Old Testament was written in. It was in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in this language. So this is uh, simply Nestle Allen, uh, Novum Testamentum Gracie, uh, Gracie, or however you pronounce it. Uh, so this is the New Testament in Greek. This is a standard uh, New Test Greek New Testament for any Greek scholar. And so here you go. I just opened up to the Gospel according to Luke. So kara loikan, according to Luke, is literally means. Uh, and so here you go. This would Greek reads like English. So you go just this way, just read across that way. Um, their letters a bit different than ours. There's some letters that look familiar. So you know you can see the, you can kind of if I bring up really close, you can kind of see an E there. So epsilon, but it looks like an E. It sounds like an E. Uh, down here, so you know I talked about all the textual variants in the Old Testament. Look at all the variants in the New Testament. It is way, way, way more. There's way more textual issues in the New Testament than there's the Old Testament, which is kind of ironic because the Old Testament, as you can hear from the word, it's older. Um, but there's reasons for that. I'm going to deal with that a little bit more later. So those are the – there are 27 documents in this. And there is 39 in this, right? So those are the 66 documents that make up the Holy Bible. Now, I said there's three languages, and the reason is is because there is um, a small part of the Old Testament, and specifically it's out of the book of Daniel. And there is also a few books in the New Testament, specifically a few of the Gospels, that were originally written in Aramaic not in Greek or Hebrew. So there is actually three languages. Uh, most pastors only learn Greek and Hebrew. Uh, they don't learn Aramaic. There are some that do. So with them being written in languages other than English, what translation do we go with? Now, there are those who are what are known as the King James only as purists. It's got to be the King James. And I'm going to be honest with you. The King James is a strong translation. It really is. Um, there's There are many times where I found myself preaching or teaching, and I would say, well, you know, this is what the English says, but, you know, the King James got a little bit better at this. And I found myself doing that on a lot of verses. And, and, so, and some of that is I think that they're – uh, I think the King James is maybe it's maybe it's the culture those translated in that it was able to translate a little bit more accurately to the um, the New Testament context and the Old Testament context. But for whatever reason, there are many times it's more accurate. Another thing is is you'll find that um, it's not as sheepish. There are some verses in the New Testament, and the Old Testament that are kind of difficult to write translate because. The language isn't exactly PC, and the King James at times was less likely to cave into PC-ness. Um, it still does, but we had some of those issues. Uh, so the King James is a solid translation. The issues with the King James is obviously the, old, the older English. Um, I know it's not technically old English. Isn't There's some people that are really... Um, there's linguist scholars that really have strict definition of what's Old English, what's not, what's Victorian English, whatever. Um, 
but you, most of you know what I mean when I'm saying this, right? The these, the thous, the thines that we normally don't speak in. So it's not really written in the language that we speak. And this does at times create uh, complications in interpretation. Uh, and the other thing is, is that the, new the King James does not have all of the manuscripts at its, at its um, access. The King James was translated off of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And so Erasmus, when he was putting together his Greek New Testament, uh, <clears throat> there was a few points where he had difficulties. One, for example, is that there were some manuscripts that we had were not existent. And so when he got to those points, especially I think it's specifically in the book of Revelation, instead of waiting to find those Greek manuscripts, he ended up translating from the Latin, Vulgate. And so that creates some inaccuracies within those translations. Um, the other problem is, is that there would be passages, and a really good example of this would be in 1 John, where he was very well aware that that was not, that it was not an accurate translation, and or an accurate, accurate verse, he still put it in. And it's specifically where it says, and these three testify... Uh, it's the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, I think it is, is the verse. I don't have my have a King James on me right now. But that's something that's unique. It's uniquely in the King James. And that's because of something that appeared somewhere around the time of the Latin Vulgate. And even though Erasmus knew that this was not original to the New Testament, he still put it in. So there are some weaknesses to the King James. It's a good translation, but it has its issues. But every translation does. Um, the New International Version, uh, the one from 1984, was a solid translation. Uh, the pro there's issues here and there, of course. Uh, but the big problem with it is primarily it's not published anymore. If you buy a New International Version of the Bible, it's going to be the one that came out in 2011, I believe it was. And there are issues there, specifically uh, gender-neutral issues. And so you think, well, what's the big deal with gender neutrality? Well, sometimes, now sometimes it makes no difference. It's not a real significant issue. But there are some verses where if you gender-neutralize it, you will actually change the meaning of the verse. Um, Psalm chapter 8 has probably one of the prime examples of that, where it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? In modern translation, in some of those gender-neutral translations, they change it to, What are human beings that you care for them? And the problem is, is that the writer to the Hebrews clarifies that this passage is um, speaking regarding Jesus. And when you're talking about human beings, it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about anybody and everybody. And so it kind of weak. It took away. It kicked Jesus out of the verse, um, in, for the in the name of gender neutrality, for the name of feminism or whatever. And so that's probably that's what that's a good example of the problem with the new NIV. The better tran the, the translation that the um, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which I'm a member, we use, is the English Standard Version. The English Standard Version was translated in the tradition 
of the King James Version, and you can definitely tell it. Uh, so it's really interesting as some people as uh, getting into a discussion with somebody, it's like, well, you know what I really like about the King James, especially in the Psalms, is it's much more poetic. Now, of course, there's a problem with that, as we forget that the Bible was not written in English. So Hebrew poetry works under a whole different set of rules than English poetry does. So there's that. But even still, if you compare the English Standard Version, so they take Psalm 23, and that's one people like say, well, I prefer the, the poetry in, in the King James Psalm 23 over the ESV King in this ESV Psalm 23. And it's really funny. As you look at it, they're almost identical. The only difference is it says, you know, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. He leads me beside still waters. Okay, so that's the ESV. The King James just says, he leadeth. So why is leadeth more poetic than leads? They're the same word, just one has if instead of z, s. And so it's ridiculous. They're both poetic. You're just being picked. You just, you're being probably more likely nostalgic. One's more nostalgic, not poetic. Right? So if you really look at the ESV and the King James, are under the same tradition. The difference is, is that the ESV has much, has resources, stronger manuscripts, very heavily relies upon this Greek and new the New Testament, the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament that I just showed you. Um, it takes into consideration the many textual variant issues. They really dig into this. So going so as I was talking about, there's these textual variants down here. There's these, you know, all these, these are verse, what a textual variant basically means that there are copies of, so right now in the Katamarkan, uh, the Gospel of Mark. So there are manuscripts or copies of the Gospel of Mark where this, you know, verse 29a is different. A Gadaika is different. So I'm just going right there, kind of doing this on the fly. So there are manuscripts or copies that have that differently. And it tells you which manuscripts are different. And so... But the thing is, when you look at the differences, majority of these are really small and very minor. They don't really change much of anything in the, the verse. But every now and then, you get major issues. So it's very handy that I'm in the Gospel of Mark. And I actually kind of alluded to one when I was talking about the King James Bible translation. Uh, but one of the things, so here, so if you look at this, this is, Mark 16. Now, you probably can't read the words, but here's, you can definitely read the number there, probably. So that's verse 8. Right here is where it ends. Now, if you were to go, this is the very end of the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you were to go grab your English translation, it doesn't end at verse 8. But many of your translations will have this little note and say, most early manuscripts do not have verse 9. Um... And so verse 9 through 20, all right? And so that's why this is all bracketed, to let you know that actually there's two sets of brackets. There's this set of brackets, and then uh, 
there's another set of brackets here. It's dealing with the the multiple versions of the the variants regarding um, the New Testament regarding the end of the Gospel of Mark, and so these are major doctrine. These are major differences, and so here's the thing: these this is a very important discussion. It's good to talk about. And when you look at these variants, it does actually highlight and help you to better understand a specific gospel. I do stand with the idea that verse 8 is the last verse in Mark. And there's reasons for that, for probably for another topic, for another day. But it doesn't really change anything major doctrinally. It does not all of a sudden have that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It doesn't all of a sudden have that Jesus was a leprechaun or something like that. It doesn't change any major teaching about the scriptures. So, um, so there's kind of a good little overview of the scriptures, of how they come together, the Greeks, the translations, the manuscripts, and the variants. And so I think at this time what I'm going to do is we're going to talk about the different books of the Bible. And I'm going to fly through this. So, you know, most of these episodes have been like 20 minutes. This is going to be probably a longer one. Uh, because I'm going to go through as many of the books of the Bible as I can. Now, as I'm going through this, I should highlight, if you want to look at a really good video resource of all this, uh, there is a video that series. It's called um, The Bible Project, I believe it is. Uh, it, these, set of, these guys, they're Calvinists. So they have belief, they disagree with me as a Lutheran on many teachings. But they have these great videos that talk about um, the Bi talk about the books of the Bible. Um, also on issues, etc. I think it was Brian Wolfmuller, I believe. I did a whole series of videos on the different books of the Bible. Uh, so I encourage you to go listen to them, watch them, or whatever. But here is a quick overview. So the first five books of the Bible is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are part of the Pentateuch. Um, Pentateuch means, you know, the five, the five books. And so Genesis, these were the names of these. A lot of these are taken from Greek words. Genesis, Genesis is a Greek word. Um, this is basically the Septuagint names, the Greek names of these. So Genesis means beginning. And so it is about the beginning of the world. And the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. That's how Genesis 1 begins. So Genesis is broken into really two parts. The first part of it is all about the creation to the flood. And then the second part, starting in chapter 12, is about Abraham and his children and his descendants. So Abraham, Isaac, um, Jacob, and Joseph. Then you have Exodus, which is really about, starts with the nation of Israel in slavery. And then it's basically them leaving Egypt after 400 years of slavery. Uh, Leviticus, it's about the Levitical laws. The Levites, um, sons of Levi, they were the priests. And so it is a, deals a lot with the Levitical law, Levitical um, code. Numbers, a lot of it is census stuff, census of the populations and the peoples of Israel. Deuteronomy, dotero nomos. In the Greek means second law. And so Deuteronomy is where we have the second recording of the Ten Commandments. The first recording was in Exodus 20. 
Um, it's recorded again in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy has quite a few uh, significant passages when teaching of the commandments of the law. Then you have Joshua, Judges. So Joshua was the one who took over. So Moses is the guy that's kind of running the show in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And by the way, he wrote all five books of the Pentateuch, it should be noted. But anyways, Joshua was the one who took over after him. And so the next book after Deuteronomy is Joshua. Then you have Judges, Ruth. Um, Ruth is the grandmother of is the, you know, is the grandmother of King David. And it's a big, Ruth is a great book of the Bible to read. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's a quick one. It's only like four chapters. Uh, but I definitely encourage you to sit down and read it. It's amazing, especially when you take into account the genealogy of Jesus and realize that this incredible devotion of a daughter-in-law and this incredible relationship of Naomi and Ruth is ultimately led to the birth of Jesus. Uh, so then you have First and Second Samuel. Uh, these are dealing with First Samuel is very much dealing with uh, King Saul and also he, and King David, the rise of King David. Uh, Samuel, by the way, is the prophet at this time. Second Samuel deals with King David. And they have First and Second Kings. It's called Kings because it's about the kings of of Israel, the northern and southern kingdom are split very early in 1 Kings. First and Second Chronicles is, again, really chronicling the history of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, then you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Uh, this is uh, dealing with some, the time leading up to the ex leading up to and after the exile. Then here comes the... So those are all history books. Uh, Esther, by the way, this is an exile. The uh, Esther is uh, she. This is where you get a lot of King Xerxes. Uh, one person argued that Esther could be seen in connection with uh, the movie Three Hundred, if you've ever seen it. Uh, so anyway, so here comes the poetry books. You have Job, which actually people don't realize this, but Job is actually the oldest book of the Bible. Um, it was written sometime during the life of Abraham. And so somewhere between the events, the chapter of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, that's when Job happens. Then he has Psalms. That is the biggest book of the Bible. Um, there's 150 chapters in, the, in them. And Psalm 119 in particular is pretty lengthy. Um, it's almost like a whole group of chapters in and of itself. Uh, you have Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Proverbs, some of it is written by Solomon, some of it's not. Psalms, some of it's David, some of it's Solomon. Um, some have, are believed, one of them is believed to be written by Moses. Um, there's a variety of authors of the Psalms. It's basically the hymn book, um, the poetry, the hymn book of the, of the people of Israel. And it's a book that we still use in our worship to this day. Then you have Isaiah and Jeremiah. These two books are Books of Prophecy, uh, Lamentations is also written by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Lamentations are kind of sequels to one another, both written by Jeremiah. Uh, very, very much dealing with the reality of exile. Ezekiel and Daniel, also prophets. 
These are known. These books are known as the major prophets. They're called major prophets not because they're cooler than the other kids, but they're called the major prophets because they are longer um, than the minor prophets. Major prophets are the long ones. Minor prophets are the short ones. And so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are significantly longer than the minor prophets. And so here are the minor prophets. You've got Hosea, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. You probably know Jonah and the, and the fish. Uh, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So those are all what makes up the minor prophets. Then, so that's the Old Testament. And so the two books, the book, the Bible is making up like the Old Testament, New Testament. Old, it's, and the reason they're called this is because really it's about two testaments or two covenants. And that's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was the covenant that was established with Abraham and reaffirmed um, through Moses and carries all the way through the, the Old Testament. And actually, it's still pretty much, it's still running the show with the New Testament when you start out the Gospels. The New Testament is really about the establishment and the fulfilling of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the beginning of the New, New Covenant. And so that's what it's about. That's ultimately why it's Old Testament, New Testament, is because... Um, that's, they're about the two different covenants. So the New Testament, uh, before you get to the New Testament, just as a little disclaimer, there are books that were written in between this that are known as the Apocrypha. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they considered this um, authoritative on the same level as the Old and New Testament. Um, Lutherans would disagree with this. And some of the reason for this is simply that the New Testament pretty much never quotes it makes any no real reference to it. If it was authoritative, they would have. Um, and But it, it quotes the Old Testament all the time. So that's the big question. Why didn't they talk about it in the early church that much? So basically the way that Lutherans have treated the Apocrypha is that it's good, it's beneficial. There are some good things to read in it. There really is. In fact, Georgia Publishing House did put out uh, a Lutheran study Apocrypha, and it's definitely, I have it right here on my desk. Um, so it's a benefit to read, but we don't, and you can learn stuff, you can grow in faith use, using it, but we do not treat it on the same level as the Old and New Testament. Um, so, but anyways, the New Testament begins with the first four books, which are known as the Gospel. So there's Matthew, written by Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, Um He's one of the apostles. Mark. Uh, Mark was a student of Peter. And there are some that have argued that the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. Uh, Peter was pretty much an illiterate. Uh, this was um, identified in the book of Acts, that he was largely illiterate. He couldn't read or write. He was not educated. And by the way, it's not an insult to say somebody is illiterate. That's pretty common in the first century. And so, but anyway, so because he couldn't write, he had someone else do it. And so Mark, many people argue the gospel of Mark is the gospel of Peter. Uh, the gospel of Luke is the third one, is the third one of the gospels. Uh, Luke was a contemporary of Paul, one of his students. 
Uh, he and and I'm going to come back to that a little bit. Then you come the then you get to the Gospel of John, and John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, he is one of the apostles. He was there at the Last Supper. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there for the crucifixion. So, a very authoritative person, individual. And then you have the Book of Acts, which was written by Luke. And the hint that Luke was the one that, that Luke and Acts are sequels to one another. Uh, Luke begins with words saying, Oh, Theophilus. Yeah, greeting to Theophilus, and Acts greets Theophilus too. And he talks about a previous work, the previous work being Luke. Luke and Acts worked in tandem to one another. And so, and the hint that we are knowing that Luke is in this is that there is certain, as you get farther into the Gospel of Luke, you get these, what are known as the we statements or the us statements. And this is letting you know that the person that's writing the book of Acts is in party with these people. So he's witnessing these things. And this is where the conclusion came that this is Luke, a contemporary of Paul, who's writing both Acts and Luke. Then you have what are known as the Pauline epistles, the letters written by Paul. You have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. Uh, Roman Galatians are almost like sequels to one another because uh, they're dealing very largely with the issue of circumcision, the events that happen Acts 15. Uh, then you have 1st and 2nd Corinthians are right in between those two. Uh, dealing with the church in Corinth, which is a very difficult church to deal with. Then you have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The way I always remember the order of these books, by the way, so Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, is gladly eat popcorn, so G-E-P-C, if that helps if you're trying to memorize. Then it has First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy and Titus. So First and Second Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles, so these are the, the letters that are written in regard to how to be a pastor, to be a good overseer of the flock of Christ at the church. And then there's Philemon. The order of these books are determined by length. Uh, Romans is the longest of Paul's epistles, and so it's the first one. And Philemon is the shortest, and so it's the last one. And whenever there's two letters to the same congregation or to the same church, they are coupled together. So you have first and second Corinthians together, first and second Thessalonians together. Then you have what is known as the Catholic epistles. Catholic just simply means universal. These were written by various authors. So you have Hebrews. Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. That's a mystery. Uh, James, uh, which was written by James, the brother of Jesus. You have first and second Peter. Peter did not actually write either of those by hand. Uh, he had a scribe, but ultimately they're really his words. You have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written by the Apostle John. And then you have Jude, which is also written by the brother of Jesus. And then the final book of the Bible is Revelation, which is its own thing. It's not, not an epistle. It's not, not a Catholic epistle, not a uh, Pauline epistle. It's... It's apocalyptic in nature. It's not a history. It's not. Um, it's not a gospel. It's just its own thing. But that is where it concludes. And so, the oldest book of the of the New Testament that's up to debate. 
Um, some argue it's the, God, the book of James. Um, I've heard some argue they could be the gospel of Matthew or Mark. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that. But those are the 27, and then the last book of the Bible was Revelation, written pretty close to the end of the first century. Um, and that was written by the Apostle John as well. So those are the 66 books that make up the Bible. That is a very big, quick overview of the Bible. And it's worthy reading it. You know, sit down and read it. Um, there's many ways you could do it. You could do the, you know, a chapter a day. Sometimes it can be overwhelming, believe it or not, because some chapters are pretty long. Um, I know some people have the tradition they read through the Gospel of Luke through December, which is great. But for some people, that might be challenging. I mean, already in the first chapter, um, the first chapter is a pretty lengthy chapter. So, but I do encourage you, if you can find a way or a time to do so, read your Bible. Um, so that is an overview of what the scriptures are. Uh, so after this, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do one more recording before I go off to lunch. And I hope this is being a benefit to you. And I hope this will be helpful to anyone that's watching it, um, growing in your faith, learning what Christians believe, what Lutherans believe. So that's the Bible. And by the way, we as Lutherans, and I, this is something I got to end on, is we as when it comes to the Bible, we believe we do not believe that it contain just contains God's word. There are church denominations that'll say that the Bible contains God's word. See, the problem with that answer is that it suggests that some of it is not God's word, right? We don't believe that. We believe it is God's word. But here's the tricky part. We believe that the Bible knows the original documents, the original manuscripts are the authoritative texts, not to the ones that we have. So the question is, do we trust what we have? And yes, we do. Because I would say that we have in our English translations is really pretty much a 99% accuracy to the original manuscripts. So and we can trust this based upon the various manuscripts we have, based upon the quotations we have from the church fathers and other people of antiquity. We have great reason to trust the scriptures, all right? And it testifies that Jesus rose from the dead which, you know, I could deal with, I'm going to deal with probably some of that evidence is in a later video. But there is definitely good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And for that reason, we, you could be confident. You could be confident in the Christian faith, right? That it's true, that's accurate. Um, the other thing is, is that, uh, so we believe that it is God's word, holy. We believe it all to be infallible, true. And it is the source and the norm for all Christian instruction. All right? So that is important to distinguish. And people say, well, there's, there's, um, they'll say, well, there's inconsistencies. There's, um, there's places where the, the Bible contradicts itself. And I would say more often than not, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. I would say usually what we think is contradiction is really a nuance. If you look closer to it, you eventually find, oh, they don't contradict. A lot of times they're dealing with different topics, different issues, and they're not really contradicting. You've got to pay attention to the details. Um, 
You know, as one pastor often says, it's the number one rule of biblical interpretation is context, context, and context. You have to read the context of the passage, and you have to take into account what all the scriptures said. And so a lot of these supposed contradictions in the Bible can be solved very easily through context, through the context of that particular passage, of that particular book of the Bible, and even take into account other scriptures in the in the Bible. Uh, there's also the issue in the New Testament of uh, antelogomena and homologomena. That is, past books of the Bible were spoken against, and books of the Bible that were um, there was some that there's unity on. And the books of the Bible that were spoken against were uh, Hebrews, James. So Hebrews was spoken against because nobody knew who wrote it. James was spoken against because it was kind of legalistic compared to especially what we read in Paul. Uh, Second Peter was um, spoken against because uh, there was question as whether or not it was written by Peter because it's so different from First Peter. And then Second and Third John were called into question, and the reason was was the Second and Third John were uh, personal letters written by John to another person, so it was questioned whether it was appropriate to keep it in the New Testament. And then finally, Revelation because of its very apocalyptic nature. But, and there's different approaches to this. And I say, for me, I treat them all the same. But there are some who, what they'll do is they'll say, for the antilegomena books I just mentioned, you could use it to learn and teach, but we don't base any doctrine solely upon it. You, They say you need to have the support of a homologomena book um, to base uh, for any doctrinal teaching. And that's also the kind of the same approach people deal with some of the textual issues when you have uh, major variants. Parts were probably down in the original manuscripts. Uh, and then finally, as we go through, I mean, this is quite a bit of stuff about the Bible. There's a lot of complexity in the history of the Bible, what's in it, what makes up, makes it up. I know this is pretty complex. Um, but you could trust everything that's in there. Trust me, there's some really good scholarship. There's been a lot of good study. And there's people who tried so hard to refute it. But you could believe what's in these passages. And we, I go through this, and you notice this is the longest recording, and probably quite fittingly so, because this is the most important topic. Really. It's, I mean, it's the most, it's a very important topic. If you don't get the Bible right, you're going to struggle with everything. So uh, it's there that I'm going to conclude and uh, I'm going to keep, I'm going to record one more video here today. I'm going to go to lunch. Uh, so I pray that this is continuing to be a blessing to you and I pray this helps you in your understanding of the basics of the Christian faith. Um, in Jesus' name, God bless. <laughs>